Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hailing frequencies are open. Are you talking to yourself again, or are you looking for some sort of response? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 405, The Examples, comes to you now via Buzzsaw Replicating Robot Beetles. And news from the fleet before this episode leaves orbit. Pete, in the world of Star Trek, okay, number two person at Alex Kurtzman's secret hideout, Heather Caden, has left the company, which... Pete, I know increasingly in our rearview mirror are the weirdo conspiracy theorists who say that Star Trek has been canceled. Uh, Heather Caden, you've seen New York Comic Con. Uh, Nice lady, great executive, very capable producer. Uh, I think Star Trek will do just fine as she explores new endeavors out on her own. Yeah, I mean, the idea that this is once again chaos on the bridge on a show a production that's weathered so much i think the conspiracy theorists can finally just relax and understand this show is going to reach its natural conclusion there are five star trek shows on right now there are others waiting in the wings once there's openings we've been told as much okay there are shakeups at production companies people seek new opportunities we've not heard as to any reason why there was as sudden an exit as there was uh could be you know uh family matters for all we know uh that's the way the cookie crumbles yeah and she's somebody who has on her resume uh pete little shows like lost gray's anatomy desperate housewives Closer, Vampire Diaries, Supernatural, and all the recent Star Trek. So certainly best of luck to her as she moves on to other endeavors. Pete, as for our other endeavors, uh, what have we been up to this busy weekend? (laughs) Not much, Matt. Just, uh, you know, uh, we got Hawkeye 105 up for you and uh just a note for people listening along there our change of schedule for the finale the finale of course streaming wednesday december 22nd and that our podcast will be hitting when matt that'll be the next day the the evening time uh on december 23rd uh so if nothing else pete that Let's us enjoy the holidays and still uh, maintain at this point. Uh, I don't see any reason to change it, but maintain Star Trek Sundays. So slight tweak for the end of the season for Hawkeye, but uh, Star Trek, same time, same place next week. Speaking of enjoyment, I got to see Matthew Lafferty for the second time in 20 months, three days ago. Indeed, we went to Spider-Man No Way Home and uh, have lots of joyous things to say on the podcast for that tomorrow. That'll be on the Pop Culture Podcast feed and the Marvel Movie Podcast feed, Uh, along with other things in the next week. We'll be talking Book of Boba Fett, Pete Stars Wars and Trek, Finding Happy Equilibrium, uh, as well as uh, the beginning of uh, the week after Christmas, Matrix Monday, we will be talking about the matrix fourth quill that will be on patreon but free to all anybody could head over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek 
on uh, December 27th and beyond to hear what we have to say about that movie. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's perhaps the busiest time of year for Fantastic Geek. Somehow it is. I don't know. I don't know what it is with the way stuff gets scheduled for TV, but that seems to always be the case. As for this show, Pete, I want to just I want to lay a little sizzle for this podcast episode. When we get to our theories segment, dear listeners, Pete is going to be sharing a theory that will blow your mind that I am 100% on board with. This is this season's Pete declares that Tyler is Vogue, as he did all the way back in the first season of Discovery. It, it's that for this season, so stay tuned. With that, let's head into our mission briefing. The USS Janeway, along with two other vessels approach the DMA, picking up massive ionic fluctuations. The NSS Tapau confirms this. They register a strange spike in X-ray radiation as there is strange but somehow familiar swirling toward the bright center of the DMA, Matt, and then it disappears. What the heck just happened? I hope that wasn't the Vulcan lady, by the way, on the comms saying what the AG double hockey sticks, because that's a very emotional take there. Uh, we cut to Stamets, who also has seen on hollow space radar that it's gone. Reno is back. Hooray. And Reno says that uh, the, the DMA disappearing is impossible. Uh, it pops back up after 4.2 seconds, 1,000 light years away. Uh, it is confirmed by Stamets. Uh, who's already working the theory corners here for us at home. He's saying it's, it is virtually impossible for it to be anything other than the same DMA. So dialogue here to say it's the same thing. However, it's not behaving naturally. Okay, not behaving naturally. Burnham double checks with Zora. Been a little while since we talked to Zora, Pete. Um, and it's confirmed that it must have been created by someone. We have dramatic music, close-ups to end the teaser act. At, actually, no. Then we cut to Vance in what I would argue is a slightly weird music moment to be like, ba-ba-ba, <laughs> And then we just continue the scene. Fire Mr. Worf. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, fire Mr. Worf. At which point Worf says, oh, okay, well, how about we, you know. But anyhow, Pete, take us, take us to, to Admiral Charles Vance. At Federation HQ here, Burnham updates Vance about the DMA, uh, which now seems to be on a rendezvous course with the Radvec asteroid belt, a former Emerald Chain colony inhabited primarily by the Akali. Uh, they have four hours to evacuate these non-Federation members. Burnham is going to lead the operation. Saru asks if there are any plans to address the panic as it becomes known throughout the universe that DMA is not a natural phenomenon. Vance says that President Rillick, who sits this episode out, is meeting with uh, planetary leaders as they speak. Saru has already spoken to his own spooked uh Council on Kaminar. Federation security has identified a number of civilizations with technology advanced enough to be behind this. And those red herrings include the Metreons, the Nacine, 
the surviving members of the Iconian Empire and the Q Continuum, but they haven't been heard of for 16, for 16, for 600 years. And it's unlike anything they've done before since Star Trek Picard season two. <laughs> uh, also in the mix is going to be genius bad boy, Ruan Tarka, who maybe one times person of the year back in 2021. I don't know. He uh, Tarka has been working on spore drive 2.0. He's at the bleeding edge of quadrant tech. That's your Federation tech and your non-Federation tech, okay? So he's to be given every courtesy. We cut to Book's ship. He's pacing. He's upset. Michael Burnham wants uh, Book to focus on what is possible today, saving lives on Radvec 5. Uh, Book indeed does want to help. Back on the bridge, uh, back to the bridge we go, Saru reporting that some of the early uh, ships sent to the colony have arrived. Burnham addresses the ship, even as it's intercut with them traveling there. So we have a little little time dilation for the purposes of film and TV storytelling here. She summarizes. There's a counting clock. We have three and a half hours to save everyone. Let's go save some lives. Pete, we go to the credits. No Mary Wiseman. Tignataro uh, in the main credits. An episode written by Kyle Jarrow, directed by Lee Rose, this the first, if you believe IMDb, the first of two Lee Rose episodes this season. As more ships warp in over the Radvec asteroid chain colony, Burnham gets a sit rep from Saru that there are 1,206 on the surface. Um, Book says they can only beam up 40 at a time, though, so it's going to be close. Lieutenant Christopher punches up the magistrate on the old hollow phone. Thank Draylin. Discovery is there. Um, they sent all their ships away with a quarter of the population. The rest are waiting in panic. And Saru sees that there are six life signs beneath the North Dome generator remaining stationary far from the evacuation point. The magistrate explains at this point that they are the titular, the examples, criminals chosen to demonstrate the cost of misbehavior, which was an emerald chain tradition. Uh, he does not see the value in evacuating them, but Book says they do not deserve to die. Burnham says that no one will be left behind on this Federation mission, but the magistrate says it's too late. Prisoner is or prison is automated, and the guards who know how to run it have fled. Uh, Burnham and Book are going to rescue those prisoners. Uh, Commander Reese volunteers to lead the uh, ancillary evacuation team, uh, which is to say the main one. <laughs> Saru. Main if you're a survivor. Uh, ancillary if you're paying attention to the narrative. To, to our story. Yeah. Saru notes that the prison is protected by a pattern interrupter, which prevents transport and comms within a half kilometer radius. We go to the Culber Stamets quarters, where Stamets is putting on a new jacket, annoyed that Ruan Tarka has not ever spoken to him directly uh, we do get the name check here of aurelio who has been the go-between uh 
for Stamets, it seems that Tarka has zero respect for professional courtesy and uh, all the things that Stamets has shared, including Stamets saying how they no longer harm the Josep anymore so that Matt won't worry about that on the podcast. <laughs> Fine, Stamets. They did, they did name check, Vance name checked Aurelio earlier. True. Um, with some sadness, given that uh, I would not anticipate we're going to see Aurelio due to Kenneth Mitchell's uh, health. We have been told he's going to appear as a, as a different character, but I guess there's what I'm trying to say, Pete. Real life stinks. It's unfortunate that Kenneth Mitchell has uh, ALS. Uh, that said, to get the name check here of Aurelio, a character that we all connected with last season, in large part uh, because of Kenneth Mitchell, um, that's, that, that is appreciated. Um, but Pete, in this whole scene, have you noticed that Culber uh, is looking a little dark around the eyes? He's had five therapy sessions in a row, no time to rest as he is, as he's getting worked to the max here. And Stamets proposes maybe that he slow down, but Culber says he's good. Obviously, this storyline mirroring our real world of first responders you know, and the strain that they suffer uh, as we're, we're dealing with COVID. To the turbo lift, Matt, where dressed completely in black and shot from the back, Tarka enters the bridge and calls the discovery an antique. Yes, uh, not the best foot to step off with uh, for... For, you know, from the perspective of our heroes, uh, a little reminiscent of Kozinski, the uh, engineer who worked with the Traveler all the way back in season one on uh, TNG. I, I think, I think, Pete, that this is a spiritual successor to that character. Uh, also, finally, Tarka and Stamets finally get to meet. Tarka says, great work. Also, you've given me great things upon which to approve. Saru says, let's go have a walk and talk in the walk and talk room. Uh, which has Tarka say, uh, oh, Kelpians really do have strange feet, don't they? So, Pete, he's just a walking, just cuddly teddy bear of a man. He is. And uh, the confirmation of the Stamets reaching out and Tarka pushing away, all that kind of stuff, Um and the seizing on the first Kelpian he's ever meet, met and uh, referring to his strange feet. Definitely the, the characterization is high on Tarka and it has to be for what they're doing. We have the story move to the colony where Burnham and Book confirm that they're approaching the prison energy field. There's some extra dialogue. Don't forget when you cross it, we can't talk to you. Uh, Pete Reese checks in via a hollow communicator connection. Just want to say, okay, I get that because of the hollow connection, he's like able to stand there in front of the two of them when they film. But he's lit from above with the same stuff that the other two are. Little bit of forethought. You could have popped like a circle of light above him, like different light, just because the real Reese isn't going to be lit. The, 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 these are the thoughts that go through my head. Although I guess Reese is elsewhere on the colony, so maybe it's all the same. I don't know. Uh, how about this? Uh, it's a cool way to be like, whoop, hollow effect, and then you get the actor to be there. And it just makes the conversation easier. 
But Pete, why is Reese there? He notes that his town was wiped out by a hurricane when he was five. Starfleet saved the day, and he kind of wants to repay the favor. So not a lot of Reese lines in this episode, not a lot of Reese presence, but a really nice impact and some great characterization for what is essentially two scenes on camera. We've had the thirst by listeners, by viewers for the bridge crew. Um, and in an episode where we get a new alien member of the bridge crew, uh, apart from the fact that in promotional stuff, Linus is seen talking to Saru at the captain's chair, but doesn't appear in this episode. Um, but here to learn more about Reese. Okay. So at five, he, his family were saved by Starfleet. Um, their their town from a, a hurricane give him uh you know motivation there it, it all works our, our our bridge crew still matters you know again covid uh restrictions and everything like that with reese back on his side of the hollow conversation and, and reese essentially now off screen burnman book step through that line kind of weird that there's no defenses they do phaser up, though. Uh, they notice a Nerissa beetle with its chitin clicking. Uh, Book is trying to telepathically talk to it, but it's not working. Oh, it also seems to be oddly automated. Uh, Pete, they then do what I think is, is, is hardwired into our primal uh, brains. Let's hide and throw rock. Which is good because it's a mobile landmine and there's more coming. Um, I might sound critical... Heard. I'm not. This is a fun little, you know, monster, Star Trek monster kind of moment here. Yeah, it's the chitin is the pronunciation on the uh, the the uh, substance that makes them click. Uh, and Book has heard that the chain used weapons disguised as a native life. Oh, and there's more coming. So we go back to Stamets briefing Tarka as Tarka fidgets with an object. Again, the characterization here. Um, There was a subspace rupture uh, when the DMA moved, but that can be created by a litany of things. Saru referees this conversation here, uh, wondering the purpose of the DMA as it is artificially created. Is it a weapon? Is it clearing areas of space for something? Is it a scientific uh, experiment gone completely wrong by a mad scientist? Um, Tarka asks where the replicator is and replicates a plate of cold mashed potatoes and a singular pea and uses his hands to make the old you know gravy spot for the potatoes and places the p dma controller at the center um stamets original theory primordial wormhole was wrong but not off terribly uh tarka thinks that somebody created a tunnel through space time to get the DMA there, but he has no idea why, except, of course, for science, Pete says. I'll also mention there's a um, 
an emotionally mumbled line, which is not to say Anthony Rapp, I'm from a mumbled line, but it's kind of, it's kind of quietly said uh, in its presentation early in the scene, Stamets noting again that there's tech at the center of the DMA. So lots of things here with this, uh, you know, perhaps it's a synthetic wormhole. It's been created through space and time. Um, I, I do like the mashed potato you know metaphor in terms of kind of being like a essentially it's like a map reading scene like in a movie when you're like oh people don't understand where we're what's going on you have people look at the map and go we're going from here to here everybody understands same thing but the the visual of the potatoes in the single p then the rather delightful notion as tarka says let's get our hands dirty by making a miniature dma pete his hands are already dirty from the mashed potatoes so it's kind of metaphorical and literal at the same time uh, turns out he has schematics already to create a mini, mini, oh. mini wormhole. Oh. He's a prepared guy. Who's a yeah. prepared guy who wears black and makes fun of everybody. Why are you <laughs> seeing villainy here? Um, they're going to create this to get data. Um, some real world uh, perspective here. How much power does it require? What are the side effects and so forth? And Stamets is impressed saying that this could be done safely because Pete... It will only be done safely in this episode and future episodes. Uh, Saru will give Commander Nilsson the con, and he will supervise, and we're going to need a bigger room. Book holds the Beatles off below as Burnham works to deactivate them. They start to replicate the buzzsaws before she disables them. They enter the prison and explain the situation. Our lead prisoner there, Felix, asks why a Starfleet captain would come to help. Uh, it's because the Federation doesn't leave prisoners to die. He explains that they received life sentences, no matter how, how insignificant their crime, whether it was stealing food for families trading in counterfeit, counting cards, and Felix is initially said to have commandeered a sand copter 30 years ago. Uh, Pete, thank you for pointing out the four crimes that we get told about. I'm pretty sure, having gone back and rewatched the scene specifically to make this claim, pretty sure that there's only four prisoners in there, or at least it's shot with four prisoner actors um in doing a deep dive on this episode portions of this may have been shot before their holiday break the led screen wasn't available until january the um the uh, reno stuff might not have been shot until may or at least her part of it so i was definitely prepared to come in guns ablaze and going it's either four or at six. Get it right, folks. But if this was an episode, parts of which were shot over six months, I'll dial it back a little bit. Uh, but I will just say the dialogue for sure tells us about four crimes. And I would be hard-pressed to tell you that there are six prisoners until they are ready to beam out or that kind of more out outdoor stuff. But as to the potency of the moment here, uh, Burnham, of course, reiterating that the Federation always has cared about these prisoners but can only help now which is true it is also a little, i mean it's a nice nuanced answer let me put it like that it, it is also 100 true there's no criticism here to the writing or the in-universe truth of it 
Uh, so where's the prison control system? Pete, it's in a basement, which is like totally another set that we're not going to be building today. <laughs> what if the force field system, which glows green, like the force fields, what if you could just phaser that? Let's phaser that. Let's phaser that indeed. Um, the anomaly may not hit. They're going to lose transporter ability in a little over an hour so our story clock continues to tick down here the prisoners agree to leave and burnham and book start to fry their cell control with their phasers which takes us to culber's office where dr kovich waits on the hollow phone uh culber is so busy with the hundreds of refugees that have boarded Discovery. He's going to need to reschedule. But as he always is, Kovic is no nonsense. Uh, he is busy himself. So they will both skip the therapeutic niceties. Um, Kolber saw how Kovic was when Giorgio was in crisis. Uh, and Kovic notes they now have eight and a half minutes remaining. Culber uh, is shaken as he notes, as he says that he's telling all his patients that this crisis won't last forever. Um, but it is a lie that Culber has answers. It's a lie that this is a natural phenomenon. Culber feels like he is failing. Col Kovic asks if this means that Culber wants permission to take a break, uh, and no wonder he's a mess if he's not if he's not resting as he is telling his patients to do. Uh, Kovic notes that Culber died and came back. He probably asks why me every morning and thinks that perhaps there's some larger purpose to his existence, a savior complex. Uh, the need for rest is again highlighted. And Pete, I really want to highlight myself how Cronenberg sparkles in this scene. I mm -hmm. don't think he's a highly nuanced actor, but he is a specialized, perhaps blunt instrument. And mm -hmm. Kovic is written to maximize Cronenberg's strengths here. Also, I'll just add visually, Cronenberg with the tall hair pointing up, kind of an oblong face, some of the lines of the neck going down a bit. It's just he's interesting to look at. They they need a dry, smart, you know, smart guy with a little <laughs> bit of a, a menace to him. That's David Cronenberg. It, it's just all working. And he's a great counterpoint to Wilson Cruz, who uh, was really complimentary of Cronenberg uh, on Twitter this week. Um, but Culber, he feels these uh, cracks in his armor here. And again, what Star Trek holding up the, the lens uh, to real life, okay, and, and telling these stories through it. Um, his existence, Kovic says, Culber's, is a middle finger to everybody who's lost someone which is everyone um and though he might be a miracle he is only human so he needs to rest um he can't stop without feeling uh guilty that he is alive and kovich gives the warning here that if he doesn't find fulfillment soon beyond uh, the professional endeavors that he will fail those that sit in the chair across from him. And he has a two o'clock. So goodbye. <laughs> uh, back to Burnham. We go. The force field is now down. 
Burnham still kind of has them at phaser point because they're ready to just scramble and she's trying to keep things a bit organized here. Essentially, the message is don't run, come with us. Um, this is, of course, ironically at phaser point, as I said, so it feels rather uh, like jailer and prisoner again. Uh, Felix says that if the anomaly misses them, they can use this time right now to escape. Uh, and ultimately, he wants a guarantee of fairness if they go with Starfleet, um, which Pete is almost a better ask on second view since he is someone, um, unlike the others, he is someone struggling with a real sense of of justice and what he needs to put into the system in order to to pay off uh, the, the injustice of the crime that he caused. To engineering where Tarka has the controller model reno can picture tilly's face when she finds out they got sucked into a wormhole three days after she left saru indeed misses tilly as well and tarka says that the difference from the theoretical dma to the actual is that the real one would have to have an internal energy source that would be very far beyond them. So these mileposts being put down, um, everything else though, with the theoretical one, he's nailed perfectly Matt, because what we're not seeing is not the prototype of the thing that they're really fighting at all. I know this, though, Pete. There was friction between Tarka and Stamets in the beginning, but hey, he and Stamets aren't too bad, Tarka says. After all, we've both been under the Emerald Chain Neural Lock, buddy. Um, but, the... but wait, but wait, Matt. Um, what what did old Tarka do when he was five years old? Uh, he cut apart a Crispillion or something that was really uh, messy. He atomized a live Caracol... He killed an animal. Now, Pete, it's funny you should mention that because you saying that just brought me back, okay, to 11th grade, Honors English, where we were supposed to read Crime and Punishment, and I didn't because I didn't like the teacher, but I did listen to her because I needed to, like, steal enough stuff about the novel so I could write my essay. She said that when the guy beats the dog in, like, the town square or something, uh, the I think we could all say objectively that's bad, but that within the world of like, or within the service of the novel, it's a message to us that that's bad. So wait a minute. If that was true for Dostoevsky, who I think wrote the book I didn't read, is that true here too? That the little boy who killed animals might also be a bad? Hmm. Uh, Pete, I know in this scene, the experiment phase one has been maxed out. You can't take transporter power because they are choosing to do this experiment. I understand the need for dramatic storylines and so forth. Just want to point out, just for one little look under the old curtain here, look behind the curtain here. They're doing this incredibly, or arguably dangerous, but definitely power-hungry experiment. Like, during the three-hour period that they need maximum energy to be transporting everybody off this thing. Like you couldn't be like, Hey Tarka, nice to meet you. Take a seat for the next three hours. Well, you get all the power you want after that. Okay, fine. Dramatic necessity and all that. Reno does say that she could reroute phaser power from her side of the room. 
want to point out, Pete, great story excuse to be keeping Pignataro, who declined to come for the first filming block um, in November, came for the second filming block in May due to her personal health concerns as a cancer survivor and so forth. Um, this is a great story reason for her to be like, I'm behind the bleep bloop thing. You guys are yelling over there. I will give you reports from this side of the room. Like, awesome. Awesome job writing, directing. The I mean, whole the thing. way that they've stitched this entire production together, you know, you said it um, prior to us recording today. It is wildly out of order, the things that they've shot. Hence, perhaps the excusable six prisoners uh, piece of dialogue for prisoners actually in the prison. Yeah. Um, but regardless, Tarka says that safety and science don't go together. And I mean, Tignataro earns her money and then some with just the look on her face and the way she says, I actually don't think that's the case. Um, it, it's, science was never accomplished without caution. Like, could it be any more apparent this guy's behind it? Um, Pete, the only way it could be more apparent is if there's an unearned bit of dramatic music at the end of the episode to really <laughs> tell us he's a bad guy, despite the fact that there's nothing in the scene objectively to indicate that. But, um, Saru essentially tells Tarka to chill. Tarka growls in Saru's face. Come on, growl back. Do it. Rawr. Saru does. And uh, and that was something. Uh, all of this, Pete, I think is, among other things, I think it's meant... Look, I think we are all rightly picking up on Tarka as a black-hatted villain. That said, the purpose of the like, come on, be free, feel your emotions, just yell and scream sometimes, primal scream therapy. I think that's also the writing to say, maybe he's just like a a fast driving hippie kind of guy. Like we might not understand why he doesn't take a bath, but boy, boy, the things he believes in, he believes in like, it's a nice bit of presentation, even though I'm not buying it. And that's not the fault of the writing. They're just trying to add some nuance here, which is, which is fine. So what is the end result? He's a ricin. He's got the tattoo though. He's from a pleasure planet. He's intelligent. He has this bond with Stam. It's not over just science, but they've also both experienced the emerald chain neural lock. Um, and what happens, you know, the, the, Star Trek science bros here. Stamets keeps wanting to push the envelope under the auspice that we'll keep it under control. We've got to be able to get the data here. Uh, and Saru says that he'll allow it, but that Reno's going to give him the ability to cut it if necessary so that we could go back down to the prison for our story clock update. Yes, Burnham has read through all the literature, and she can give political asylum to those who need it, particularly since they are examples for everyone. That's why they're being punished. Ergo, they are being unfairly punished. Ergo, all they need to do is say that they want their case reviewed by the Federation. All say yes. All head for the exit. Oh, wait, except minus Felix. They just need to get something from his cell. He and Burnham step away. Felix admits to having, indeed, in truth, killed a man once. He also took the Lalogi Orb, a record of family history. He promised himself that he would return it to the family one day. He has gotten the orb now. He's going to live up to that promise. 
now they're ready to step out of the prison interior. And Luda, ah, oh, Luda, Pete, she sets off the force field, probably with her biosignature, uh, leading to them being <gasps> all trapped. Yeah, that the nanomaterial curtain here that in no way is the AR wall has come down in now front we, of them. Pete, you said them. nanomaterial. Doesn't that mean that it's physical and not energy-based? Uh, I like that it had... I mean, they've used the programmable batter and they've used it interchangeably from a story prop sense. So it it all works. I'm just pointing out that if you had something that could do physical damage to this nanomaterial, that would solve the problem as opposed to another force field that needed another phaser thing. I don't know, Pete, take us through the scene here. Maybe there's something that can cause a physical explosion for this physical nanomaterial. I don't know. Those uh, beetles <gasps> that uh, book suggests that Burnham power back up. She's going to bring the fields and fields of them, whether they are landmines or they are buzz saws uh, to the point where they blow open the door, then you've got to make them stop so that they can all leave. It's a, it's a fun action bit here. Actually, the second view when there's like the hordes of beetles exterior shot coming to the prison, there was like random explosions and I wasn't quite sure why. And then I was like, well, is it, what is that supposed to be? And I was like, actually, it's just cool fireballs. Like, it, we're already ridiculous enough, uh, and ridiculous within the world of Star Trek, don't get me wrong, but it's already, like, robot beetles that explode and have buzzsaws, and I'm on board for that. So, you know, is it magma that's firing up here, or is it beetles bumping into each other and exploding? Like, it just makes for extra tension, which is fun. Um, they blow the door open. Now the beetles are coming in even more. They're getting ready to buzzsaw. One fires. Bleep, bloop, blop. Burnham saves the day. Uh, perhaps Pete, if only to annoy the people who are annoyed when Burnham saves the day. When they get uh, back to the discovery here, Saru inquires uh, into uh, Commander Reese's status. He's got to evacuate two more groups, and then they'll be done. There's been no word from Captain Burnham. Uh, Saru directs him to finish up and then to assist her, uh, and that they need to finish this experiment now. Reno has transferred the additional power between the model and the containment field, uh, but they're linked that they need to go slow because the more they feed the monster, the more they need the cage. And Saru is sent a digital kill switch there that he can and eventually does pull down on. Tarka gives Stamets the honors uh, and the field begins to weaken right away. It could destroy the ship, begins to stall out. But it's Stamets that's pleading with Saru that they need this data. And Tarka piles on that it's going to save everybody's lives, including grumpy ladies and all of Kaminar. But Stamets can control it, Matt. He can control it. Uh, Stamets can't control it. Uh, <laughs> though more power is needed, the containment field is dropping 40, 30, 25, 15, 10, 
So at that point, Saru throws the switch. Oh, come on! Uh, is said his way, but them's the brakes. Uh, back to the planet, Burnham and um, all of the, actually scratch that, most of the definitely six prisoners at this point bur- uh, beam up. Um, so we have five beam up. Got Burnham, Book, and Felix remaining. You might notice, Pete, that Felix does not step through that uh, that uh, green line quite yet. Um, Felix indeed is staying. He wants to stay until either his jailers return or the anomaly gets him. It's part of his penance. Burnham tries at length to talk to him uh, about it, to talk him out of this decision. They ponder the notion of freedom versus responsibility. Uh, this is also a debate of personal agency versus saving lives. Burnham ultimately gives Felix her communicator and steps away, not before Felix gives her the orb. Uh, and with that, Burnham and Book are able to beam up mission almost completely completed. Um, he's, of course, grateful that uh, she takes this on here. But Book says that it is wrong and definitely something I think part of a larger tapestry we'll look at with theories um, on the bridge as they beam in. Burnham notes they've saved a thousand lives, uh, but Nilsson confirms that the DMA is coming their way. Felix wants to unburden himself of what he did, and we're about to put the privacy barrier used earlier in the season with Book up around the captain's chair, but he's lived behind walls long enough, and he's okay with others listening. Uh, 30 years ago, He uh, was given shelter by a stranger, and uh, in the stranger's sleep, he decided to rob him. Uh, He woke up, they struggled, and Felix killed the stranger, whose daughter was in the other room, and then he realized one of the items he stole was the orb, and in addition to the death of her father, he also robbed the child of her future and her past. Uh, He does not have a full name, but the family name is Doxica. It's just then that we lose comms and a rather impressive sequence here. You've got the son of the system. You've got the DMA beginning to shimmer in the background and uh, the light on the surface of the asteroid chain as it falls in. So a really peaceful way for Felix to go. Uh, Burnham watches and then closes her eyes. Real great use of the moment here. Matter of fact, the resignation of Black Alert and then to jump them out. After the jump, the magistrate huffs and puffs his way to the bridge. The prisoners must be put into the brig. Uh, Burnham reminds the magistrate that he is the sovereign magistrate of, oh wait, no, nothing, because the colony is now gone. The magistrate is a refugee now, seeking shelter and grace. Hopefully he will find a new home with more kindness than the one he led. Uh, Thunder here. Sick burn Yeah. It's it's it, it's a great moment. Um, if anything, it's kind of underplayed. The whole kind of refugee notice uh, notion, rather, 
is maybe a little underplayed for what it could have been. And fine, if you want to not, um, if the choice was made to not turn this into the help the refugees episode, but instead here Starfleet comes to help people in need like Starfleet does. It's actually not that big a deal. And if that's kind of the lesson that there is no lesson because doing it is the right thing to do. Um, and you don't want to turn it into an episode about the refugee experience or whatnot. Those are all perfectly fine choices. Uh, the story that we are with, though, turns to Culber and Stamets getting ready to turn in for the night. Tarka is a genius, but he's scary. He's so single-minded. Can you believe that, says Stamets? Oh, wait, that's like Stamets, which is... And like Culber. <laughs> yeah, and, and like Culber, as Culber has increasingly turned out. So it's a really great moment for um, reflection here, particularly as... It's clear to Stamets the Culber is not really fine, given those tired, downward eyes. Uh, the two men have helped save the universe, but they can't figure out their own stuff. And the idea of taking a break again floated there for Culber that Kovic has come up with. Um, in a turbo lift, uh, Burnham has the orb. And she speaks with Zora there, who we find out has now developed emotions recently. Yes. And um, as Zora says, you know, essentially says, Turbolift ride over. Good chat, Captain. Uh, you can see Burnham making a mental note. I have no doubt in the script that it also was like, Burnham is somewhat distressed, but tries to hide her. You know, something like that. Like, this is this is meant to be an acting moment. Slightly less flashy than, wait, what is this? Oh, no. But it is it is noted uh, to we, the audience, and to Burnham. Uh, where's Burnham headed? She's off to see Patri Doxica, the daughter uh, of the killed man. And the orb is handed over. Uh, Patri Doxica sees her family tree, her family history. She notes that she was never added to the tree. It scans her face, and we see that she has now joined her family history in a simple and touching moment. I would like to point out, Pete, that this, um, th though this orb does not have a complete mystery to it, it's a great example of a MacGuffin in that I don't understand why the orb is better than just like a piece of paper that's your family tree, but the Doxica family cares Felix cares, Burnham cares, and that makes we, the audience, care as well. And it's a great moment here as she adds herself to the family tree, helping uh, Felix keep that promise. And then the, the great moment by the actress there as Burnham hopes that she'll add to the tree, touching her belly there that she's expecting. We go to the ship's bar where Book is drinking alone, drinking Synthahale. Tarka can smell it as he comes in. Here, try some rice and whiskey. You other spore driver, you, because I have a notebook with many of your names and dossiers in it. Uh, this rice and whiskey, it's the real stuff. Good job on getting everyone out, or almost everyone. Speaking of almosts, Tarka had an almost moment today, too. Oof, too... Two guys, rough days at the offices. Book senses that Tarka knows who is behind the DMA. Tarka says that he doesn't know yet, but he knows it's not the Metrons or the Nassine. Pete, I know the Metrons. I know the Iconians. Who are the, the Nassine? You don't caretaker 
about the Nacine. Oh, there you go. See, the, the, the Star Trek universe is so broad, they can fill it with so much. Um, Tarka says that science experiments have many purposes, and this one told him that this whole ship couldn't keep the little tiny mini DMA running. Uh, the real thing has the power of a hypergiant star. Pete, I feel like I need to be on the lookout next week for a hypergiant star. Um, Book is an angry man, and Tarka knows that that is a productive emotion. But wait, Pete, is is Tarka feeling feeling a little physical pain or something? What, what's going on there? He is at the back of his neck here. He's got a little boo boo. He is. I kind of was just like, oh, that must have been for the neural controller thing that he referenced earlier. But this, Pete, is where two guys who don't know each other meeting at a neutral place, the ship's bar, having a drink, as one does, having a conversation. It feels very dramatic as the episode concludes. Pete, we have an incoming tactical analysis to talk about this week's threats. Let's start with the DMA being artificial. That they've gone from it being a natural thing, that space is the threat, and now we've changed that. And okay, so that's the constraint of story. Um, And you may not always keep something the way that it's introduced so it all tracks i would add too like it's all well and good to say let's like let's make nature the villain you know it's the hurricane coming all right well you can't stop a hurricane you know like there's not the solution where now we've defeated all hurricanes versus you know to sit and say oh no here comes the bad guy navy all right well either you blow them up or you turn them around or you diplomacy them or whatever but you can say and thus we agreed that you shall not cross the line again, and the war is over because we signed a thing to end the war. Like, it's it's very Star Trek to have a natural phenomenon, but it's a bit more dramatic to get down into it and to say, no, it's actually a fixable problem. Which leads us to what is checked in the story as Unknown Species 10C. Yeah, which was... Uh, very Star Trek in its specificity. Um, I, I guess that has some ring to it. Like kind of reminds me of what was it? Species eight, four, three, two, seven. Do I have that number correct uh, in my brain? Species eight, four, seven, two, eight, four, seven, two. You know, I, I know this because, uh, we had them in my parents, uh, house. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I guess if nothing else, Pete, this unknown species 10C begs definition, and it's a little bit of a story flag to say, we will take the unknown out of this and be able to define them with more Star Trek science. Yes. Um, and I think it's also a massive misdirect. The idea that there is a species behind this, that they've mentioned others that will check in with in a little bit, but this is all a distraction, Matt. Uh, but there is this massive panic that obviously the galaxy is going through. Yes, particularly as Star Trek explores the idea that its fictional threat uh, is 
has been created. Um, Pete, I will use the uh, human and gender centric phrase man made. Um, but just this idea that it perhaps came from a lab, which is an interesting, an interesting area from which Star Trek can be pulling because I think, uh, I think a lot of sensible Star Trek fans don't think that every threat comes from a lab or that it's lab leak or things like that. Right. Right. That, uh, you know, the, the metaphor here and, you know, could Star Trek be holding up the mirror to the silliness of that um, remains to be seen at this point. And obviously Star Trek has, has dipped into tapped into conspiracy stuff before um, never to validate more so the sense to examine and, and to draw for story purposes. Um, but it's this panic coupled with the stress and the strain of our first responders like Culber, uh, who they're being driven to a breaking point five episodes into this season. Yeah. And I think that, too i mean clearly the the uh influence as you noted the influence of culver as a first responder and dealing with uh dealing with helping others deal with their burden how that's placing placing it on him and so forth this is a very honest grounded story point and i think that when you look at it in the mixture of things like giant space threat that's hugely huge and takes out planets in a single bound and you know has science to it and mystery to it um it's good for multiple episodes to have the counterpoint of this guy is exhausted as he helps other people emotionally process their worldview and their world experiences and so forth um so not only is it honest and timely but i think it fits it fits like star trek fights big space question mark again like it's a great counterpoint to that and then of course we have ruan tarka somebody we hadn't had mentioned to this point whose shadow precedes him tortured animals as a child he's a reckless scientist and other than the dma of course surely our season-long baddie I mean, Pete, the last name sounds like Tarkin, the baddie from the first Star Wars movie. The first name, Ruan. Here he is to Ruan everything for everybody, okay? Just upset the apple cart. And and we'll talk more in theories, but depending on how bad he could be, you know, he could be real bad, real ruinous for people. The opposite of ruinous, Matt, are the people that go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and help us uh, power our experiments. They are our Renos at the controls there, making sure that uh, things are just as they should be, keeping us listener supported, which we do appreciate so much, particularly this time of year as we're chugging through storage and bandwidth and all that stuff, particularly as we look at the, the the early part of the year the january part of the schedule where some of those bills do come in uh come home to roost and so forth so all of those go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and keep us going uh we give them our thanks 75 
uh, separate pieces there and counting for them to check out. Takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door. Can't contribute this month. Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts where you can help us immeasurably leave us a rating in seconds or a review and just a little longer to any of our 25 podcast feeds at this point. Show Discovery a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek. A little love. Let's use our long-range sensors to scan for some theories. Pete, I was expecting that this would be a Jonathan Frakes episode. Um, We know he started filming five or six weeks, uh, maybe seven weeks after the season uh, first started filming. Yes, there was this slower work pace. Um, There was also only the one two-week shutdown due to COVID. To what degree do you think that they shot out of order or was part of the long shoot in addition to the COVID stuff. Fingers crossed. Do you think there was maybe more than 13 episodes? I think there's only 13 episodes. We do know next week's episode um, is an action piece. Uh, They're going to go into the DMA. Um, The footage of Burnham in the spacesuit and the captain's chair so obviously they're going to really white knuckle that. Is that where Frakes comes in? Strangely, Matt, no episode title given out ahead of time for next week. Speaking of the larger Star Trek universe, it's noted that the Q have not been heard from in 600 years. Is that a Picard season two tie-in? Like, can we start to think maybe Picard season two somehow is the end of the Q continuum? I don't think so. I mean, it's such a differential time, 930 years, 600 years, where Picard is, still puts some buffer time after that. So I I think other than a a acute mention, hey, the Q and, you know, they were a thing. And by the way, check out Star Trek Picard season two. I'll just point out, Picard season two, Picard season one was on the cusp of the 25th century. Let's say Picard season two is in the 25th century. So 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31, 32. I count 700 years. That That's assuming from the very beginning. I think this way, Pete, I'm going to claim this as a thing to keep an eye out for, for Picard season two. <laughs> Again, if you're just spitball, especially two, if you're just spitball, spitballing as Vance, 600 years could actually be 700 or five, you know, that kind of thing. So we'll see. Um, More squarely to this episode, you have pointed out all these reasons why, while Tarka, why Tarka is obviously going to to tip bad. So will he, or is somehow all of this a misdirect? So let's get down to the nitty gritty here, Matt. And uh, spoiler Pete, who does not have spoilers coming uh, from inside the production about this. I'm going to lay it all out for you. All right. Fire away. This is what we teased at the top of the episode. Okay. So the DMA is discovery and I will walk you through as to why that is, but never more apparent on the rewatch, particularly with the way that the bright, 
center of the DMA swirls right before it disappears and does its 4.2 second thousand light year uh, travel via the mycelial network to the other spot. So what's led us to this? All right. A uh, number of breadcrumbs throughout this episode. The development of emotions by Zora and something that two scenes later, um, Tarka is talking about how anger can be, uh, you know, something uh, effective to tap into. Um, obviously, all the theoretical work that Tarka has done comes prepared with these schematics to create the um, model of the DMA. Um, the spore drive research that he's been doing, the next generation spore drive research. And then obviously he meets the other operator at the end of the episode. So he's made contact with both Stamets and Book. Okay. Is he going to need one, both? Does he become the next uh, operator that can move Discovery inside the DMA? that's doing this we're told about the um, space-time tunnel that's gone on the thing that was missing previously with the primordial wormhole theory was the tachyons so has there been some other way they've come up with to do the space-time tunneling um and then is this shaping up to be by the end of the season book as somebody who's obviously borne the greatest um, damage from the DMA, losing his planet, losing the majority of his species versus Tarka, who seems to be chasing the science and super reckless with how he does this. Um, the, the thing that's been out there obviously since after season one of discovery is the short trek where discovery is abandoned where zora is the ai and um a refugee uh boards it and you know we get that touching little story there but we've never come back to it so i'm going to propose that by the end of this season we're going to catch up to that that Perhaps Discovery gets abandoned and season five will begin with the USS Discovery A. Well, I think technically this is already that are nominally the A because the refit, but a, a brand new Discovery nonetheless. I think that, first of all, it's difficult to argue against the, the, the thought process that went into that theory. And I do feel like we're looking at, uh, as I said at the top of the episode, we're looking at one of these things where you've made the call. And um, I, I think, Pete, we, we are all going to be watching to see as all this falls into place because all the pieces do seem to be pointing towards this conclusion. Um, 
add to it, you know, the exterior, the notion that as a production, could they handle building a brand new set? Um, if you're going to go for a season five, sure, absolutely. Um, particularly since you've had the same bridge set for all these for all this time, you've already built your uh, Strange New Worlds bridge set on the back of Discovery budget stuff. So for that show, which by the time this episode was shooting, by the time the beginning of this season of Discovery was shooting, um, Strange New Worlds had not. But just the point being, for uh, Strange New Worlds season two, could you take Discovery sets that you're not using anymore and um, majorly repurpose them for other stuff, whether it's other bridges or you know blinky rooms or that kind of thing? So I think you're I think you're onto something here, particularly if and perhaps best of all, if they're not thinking of making season five be the last season, then all the more reason to be like, yes, we will do a, you know, day zero build from scratch, brand new bridge um, and, and majorly redo our sets. So it's not, well, we made some changes because it's the, the, the nanobot upgrade. It's, you know, meant to be a brand new thing. You can go from scratch. Um, on the one hand, they'll be like, no, don't take away the ship from me because I liked, the, you know, Star Trek 3 still hurts and, you know, uh, losing the Enterprise D still hurts and so forth. But um, it's a good vote of confidence to say same show, brand new ship, among other things, let alone we've had that excellent short trek out there for so long. Pete, one possible tweak that I might offer to your theory. What if... If they end up keeping this discovery and this discovery set, could we touch base with 900 years in the future, then have that discovery come back in time? Um, so that way you get to recycle the set and so forth. And then you kind of close the loop of they probably didn't, they probably weren't planning for the 32nd century storyline when they sent. Um, you know, when they wrote that short track and now it's kind of like, but the design is different because it's evolved and, and all of that. This could be a way to close that loop in terms of like, you know, because Zora did a thing and then time travel and ta-da, we're back to where we left off. Just like Pete, the Defiant number two, that was right. the same as the Defiant number one because we <laughs> wanted to lose that tough little ship, but also keep the model in the set. It's a couple line of lines of dialogue away from explanation. Um it's worth noting that that Discovery Season 1, Episode 5, Choose Your Pain, introduces Ash Tyler, who's, you know, spoiler, if you haven't been there, I'm pretty sure at this point you have, who's really Vogue. Um, and that episode airs, we podcast that night, and I threw that out there. Um, I'm not saying this as a I told you so. This is episode 405. It's approximately the place in a season. You might throw this out there. Um, you know, I've seen some some off-the-wall theories. And again, with the red herrings of the, the species they talk about here, we're going to look at in a moment. Uh, and then other people, it's a Tyson sphere. It's, it's this, it's that. I, I think it's hiding in plain sight discovery is the enemy i think too you know we talk about the flavor of the writer's room and all of that despite the fact that there's you know largely unwarranted criticism that like discovery and burnham are always at the center of everything like 
yeah, it's a show called Star Trek Discovery and she's the captain now. <laughs> like, yeah, like they're not afraid of making these characters at the center of galactic events. Um, and if that's wearing on you because, you know, oh, in classic Trek, there's times they wouldn't do that. Yeah, true. And in, in classic Trek, there's times where they were running out of money and they take, you know, bubble wrap and uh, spray paint it. And that was like an outfit or that was a sash or, you know, things like that. Like it's it, it's just a different toolbox. Um, the writing room doesn't mind keeping discovery at the center of things. So to literally have discover discovery at the center of this and therefore the driving factor for the season we've also got the reminder hey people were suspicious when discovery got here like it would be some interesting drama maybe they wouldn't do a ton with it but just for the ability for you know uh you know whatever the the, the fruit vendor at uh, hq to be like are you never to trust you wrong and to throw a you know green uh you know <laughs> banana at you you know whatever it is like you could get some story juice out of that and let's not forget this is a writing room like most writing rooms that are always thinking of not just like big picture story, but you know, Oh, then that would impact stamina, impact stamets like this. Then that would impact that character like that. Ooh, then we could do a whole scene where angry mob or, Oh, we're being stricken from the next mission, uh, which is coincidental for a bottle episode, but also they're not letting us go because we're in timeout. So we're going to do a, whatever it is, there's these different twists and turns other than see a thing, go score the touchdown, come back to HQ, you know, declare victory. Yeah, and I, I could see it happening. I, I could also see that they could go in some other directions. What I don't think it'll be, and I think what it's it's kind of become the thing in you know science fiction, particularly when it comes to um, you know visual media, is well the the gatekeepy idea of well i watch so much if not all of this therefore my super uh involved theory that you know snoke is really the child that anakin should have killed in the jedi temple and because i've watched all of that it needs to be that otherwise what they give me is not what i want um you said it yourself the show is star trek discovery it would be novel yet keeping with the show to have them be the threat um and i think that's where it's going but let's talk about these other species that are thrown out there matt Okay, fire away. Who do you want to start with? So the, the Iconians Metrion. are a personal favorite of mine, but where do you want to start? The, the Metrions. Now, those are the Greek god people from Arena, right? Yes, that uh, bring Kirk, that bring the, the Gorn uh, to said Arena. First of all, Pete, I sometimes wonder what are the things that didn't fit in my brain because I immediately know who the Metreons are and I can see the guy and see how he's kind of sparkly <laughs> and like not just Caucasian, but like white powder skinned or glistening or like whatever it is. Like yeah. what is it that's missing there? Like I can't, what is it that I can't do? Um, here I think is the story impact. I, I don't think that the writing room sits around and goes, how can we shut down, you know, blogs and podcasts on theories 
I do think it might be a discussion. How do we set expectations accordingly? And if the Metreons and the Iconians, the Iconians uh, season one TNG, I believe it was, and they had uh, technology where you could step through the portal and transport season anywhere. Two, and then it was also on Deep Space Nine. Got it. Uh, I, I knew it was the uh, I knew it was the the neoprene uniform era, um, but just the the point being those are all on the storyboard because it's all one Star Trek universe. So I think it is you know again I don't I do not think the writing room is like how do we shut down theories, but these are powerful creatures that are out there. You have the cue to it as well. These are powerful creatures that are out there, and it's a legit enough concern to say how are we going to get the Enterprise D from here all the way to a threat that is so far away that you're never going to see them coming. Oh, Q says, go meet the Borg. Oh no, the Borg are about to eat you. Ba-dum, welcome back. Get ready for that. Like that's okay in Star Trek. So it is the responsibility of this episode to say, in addition to, you know, geek name check. Ooh, like, Oh, they mentioned the, the Janeway. They mentioned the T'Pau. That's fan service. The mention here of these three species plus uh, the Q it's not fan service in my mind. It is establishing what it what it definitely is not. So let's start thinking in another direction. Right. I mean, you, you're going to evaluate, well, who are the possible suspects? And then, of course, it's not going to be any of them, right? Because story and, and misdirect, you know, the Nacine, they were the, the caretaker species from Voyager. Obviously, bringing a ship 75,000 light years. So, all right, that they could do these things. Could they be, but not really be behind the, the DMA? Um, and, and you throw them out there like that. Um, the sequence at the beginning, you know, you mentioned the Tapau. We've got the USS Janeway. Great homage there, obviously. Um, and the way that the sequence with the winking out of the DMA and it moving um, in identical state to another spot transfers to the star map and a lot of references visible there in the star map. I'm sorry, Pete. I was just down a click hole here because I was like, I just want to let me do. I, I know Tapau, the Vulcan elder. Uh, Pete, did you know that there's also... Uh, in the real world, the English rock music band from the 80s and 90s called Tapau, named after the Vulcan Elder, that had know. top 40 hits in the UK, including China in Your Hand, Heart and Soul, and Valentine. Okay. Like, you know what? The Star Trek universe is so great that uh, these folks uh, got together and made some made themselves some music. There you go. But, but what Star Trek point were you talking about while I was learning about the band Tapau? So the, the map... You know, they obviously bring in the Akali in this episode. They're on the map there. We can see Wolf 359. We can see Denoblia, um, Benzar, amongst some other ones here that are, uh, you know, prominent. Um, but Memory Alpha is visible. Well, Memory Alpha is a plan. I, Pete, this is without me having memory alpha or any other yep. thing open. This is just time time spent, so I can't do higher level, you know, like geometry and calculus and whatnot. This is this this is the part of the brain where I'm at now. Memory alpha, let's not forget, is the planet in which yep. uh, all the memory of the Federation is kept and whatnot. Um, 
I do wonder, like, I know that the the Star Trek Online uh, map of the Alpha and Beta Quadrant has had influence on some of the Discovery maps. And I know that the Star Trek Online map has also pulled from some of, like, the not 100% canonical stuff that's been published book-wise, like Larry Nemechek and, you know, Astro Charts of the Federation or, or book something like that. So... If nothing else, it's interesting to see um, what in the old order of Star of Star Wars would have been like, not not the top level canon, whatever their special phrase was for that, to see some of the lower level stuff kind of make its way up because here's a map that works in Star Trek Online and here's where you keep the Breen there and far, but not too close, but kind of Deep Space Nine, you kind of work it out, work out what it is by what it is not. I would. I bet you that if people haven't done it yet, I bet you that there are people that have taken this map, the map from this episode, that's kind of like horizontally viewed, like going across the ocean, as opposed to looking top down, <laughs> and they've kind of triangulated to say, here's how it fits with the top down view on Star Trek Online and other sources, because um, that's that's what we Star Trek fans do sometimes. <laughs> We've got this new alien at navigation uh, with Awoshikun not in this episode. Yeah, and I don't mean to say it for the thousandth time every podcast this season, but you know, I'm certainly not going to presume, oh, some, this person or that person was down with COVID. I think from a planning perspective to go, hey, for this bunch of episodes, we're going to have performer in a mask. And not just any kind of mask, it's a big silicon mask that goes over the whole head. That way, if there's any concern about this, that, the other, we can put any of 15 people inside the mask and have them sit there and push buttons when we need to do wide shots. Um, for as much Pete as we say, give us more of the bridge crew, if this isn't the season to do it logistically, as we have discussed before in an episode that has elements that may have been shot across six or eight months, uh, let alone Pete, they were doing um, reshoots all the way to the end of August. So I don't know what was reshot. For all I know, for all you know, you know, the close-up of Stamets and Culber hugging or something. That could have been one of those things. So this literally could have been the better part of 10 months to make the footage in this episode. This is not the season to go, oh man, why didn't they give Reese more than two scenes? Because it is what because they're they're dealing with a, a thousand plates spinning on a thousand sticks all while trying to get nobody sick. So, so right. yeah. And we had Nelson, we had Christopher. So they're they're peppering them in old, new, not getting them all all the time. I get it, but these are extraordinary circumstances. Gonna throw you my really off the wall idea to dovetail with uh what i gave you before matt is a version of lorca at the center of the dma that uh, unfortunately or fortunately i don't know my first thought goes again outside the story how easy is it to get jason isaacs and i i think he's more u.s based than uk based but canada and and, and quarantine and all of that when in the season and so forth versus there i feel like there's a variety of factors that make me want to say no uh however this is the season that overcame lots of no's right they could have just said we're going to push it another six months on top of that star trek be darned the brand be darned subscriptions be darned we can't safely do it they did anyway 
Could it be Lorca? I mean, let's not forget we do nominally have uh, Prime Universe Lorca, very presumed dead, but not definite. We do have the weird phasing out that occurred to Mirror Lorca uh, in his demise, or demise in quotes. Um, It would be a heck of a thing, whether, whether it's the end of one of these episodes or... Let's not forget, Pete, before COVID, if you can remember those times, the original plan was to shoot seasons four and five back to back, which, again, exterior of the story, that makes me a little nervous because that sounds like everybody worked really hard for the next 35 to 40 weeks because we're canceled after that. Um, I don't know if that's accurate and if that's an accurate way to have viewed that pre-COVID plan. But, Pete, here's my point. Could you have said, could the original plan have been Episode 413, look, we've finally gotten into the discovery that was at the center. The And sh- 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 who is it? Lorca's back. Boom. End of season. See you season five. And if the original, original plan was you just keep shooting on through, then you should have him shoot for 413 and cut. All right, take lunch. After lunch, we start 501 and action. So it, it's... Pete, I'd say it's an unlikely theory, but it's one that deserves to be on the board. Culber and this idea of taking a break, are they writing in the uh, COVID protocols to explain why we won't have the ship's counselor for a little bit? I, I would hope that's not the case. I think talking about mental health, um, if something Gene Roddenberry wanted to do in 1986 and they they stuck with with Counselor Troy, then by and large it fell away. Yes, you brought it back for uh for uh for when when Dax uh was Enzri. What's her first name? I can remember uh, Bruce Maddox off the top of my head. But when 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 the second Dax appeared at the you know for season seven of Deep Space Esri. Nine, Ezri. Okay, she you know she was a she, fine. She was a counselor. I think. That was to give you some contrast from from Jedzia and so forth, um, but it's a good point. It's it's as good a point now as ever. Uh, it's as good a point in the COVID era of, you know, no, you're not crazy for thinking that there's existential. You're for feeling existential dread. There's an existential crisis going on alongside with the health crisis and so forth. Um, it also gives him more to do other than oh no, I'm not getting life signs in a show where we're not killing people off at the rate that we did in classic Trek. Um, so it all makes sense. Is it to an end point? Is it to a story point or is it just to let the character mature at his own pace? Time will tell. Book did not want to leave Felix to die. Burnham did. Is this the beginning of a fracture in their relationship? I hope not. I think more so it's the beginning of a conversation and it might be a conversation that we we might not we might not sit and say, "Hey, you should have all the rights you want and you should be able to do whatever you want to do um at all times." Whether that's through a covid lens or just in general, I I think there are there are limits to complete personal freedom at all times, do whatever I want. Um I, I applaud Star Trek for having the discussion because it would be easy to be like, oh man, the space DMA is getting everybody sick. We need to give up certain liberties for the greater good. 
that's the lesson the end like that's easy it's also hard because that's the discussion going on in the real world and it's controversial blah 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 but to sit and say well wait i like book and i like personal freedoms but i don't want this guy to die he's a he's an awesome awesome guy oh, oh felix killed a guy okay that's less awesome uh I'm, I'm digging the vibe of the actor let's have more of him no he got killed off it's the discussion it's not necessarily like star trek taught me burn my mask because personal freedom just like felix who died you know it doesn't need to be a one for one it's <laughs> it's the discussion you have along the way with that let's go to hailing frequencies hailing frequencies open sir we head to our Twitter poll where this week, uh, Pete, I had the challenge. Again, I didn't want to be spoilery, and I got the poll up a little late because going to see Spider-Man and all that. But which character from episode four or five captures the examples that I did there because they were captured? <laughs> I actually don't, don't even know if I did that on purpose, um, but sometimes inspiration. I'm like, I'm like Tarka. Sometimes inspiration just comes. Anyhow, brilliant scientist got seven. Oh, so which, which character captured your feeling on the episode? Brilliant scientist, 17.1%. Jetting like Reno got 42.9%. Uh, Saru yelling angrily got 20%. And prisoner dot 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 alert emoji got 20%. Some replies to our tweet. JT Adkins, it's at JTA is me. Great one for the books, pun intended. I don't trust Grand Moff Tarka. I didn't trust him in the Expanse either. Um, book is no doubt onto something for real. Now, pardon me while I go try to develop a therapeutic hobby. <laughs> uh, we heard from Andre Yeager. It's at Dr. Polo in 1983. I love Cronenberg. He chews up scenery whenever he shows up. Great emotional episode. That scientist was a jerk. Trying to censor myself or else I would have used a harsher word, but he is brilliant and knows more than he's telling liking the overarching story this season uh we heard from trek girl uh pardon me at trek girl that's uh stingray uh who says david ajala and wilson cruz continue to blow me away with how they portray their characters grief books anger and culver's unraveling are equally relatable good to see reno and stamets this week love tignataro's deadpan delivery when she comments mm -hmm. uh that's the closest they've been to death and that's saying something uh, the DMA gets curiouser and curiouser. Tarka is definitely hinky. Can't wait to see what the deal is. Uh, Pete, note to self, we need to use the hashtag Tarka Hinky. <laughs> hinky Tarka. Hinky Tarka, even better. Uh, we heard from Spider-Ham Lincoln. That's at TessLC139. This was a good, not great episode. Uh, Pete, let me pause Spider-Ham Lincoln's words for a moment just to say, I will always go back and rewatch this episode and be like, this was the perfectly good, fine, solid, engaging Star Trek episode that happened the week of you-know-who showing up in uh, Hawkeye and then everything that's amazing for Spider-Man No Way Home. And then we watch this episode and then a day or two later, talk about Hawkeye. And like, it's this is forever going to be the, the middle child. It's um, etched in there, man. Yeah, but um, I, but I nonetheless would agree, even without Spider-Man and Hawkeye and all that, this was a good, not great episode, as Spider-Ham Lincoln said. And he goes on to say, loved seeing Reno again, disappointed by another week of no Owo or Detmer. Must be a production issue and not a writing choice since we've had unnamed and heretofore unseen bridge crew, uh, or pardon me, crew at their bridge stations. Ruan Tarka, the Ryson, was an interesting character who we'll probably see more of good to get an Aurelio name drop 
The DMA mystery is developing nicely, and I'm appropriately intrigued by Zora's evolution. This season is shaping up pretty well so far. Discovery doesn't have too many characters, per se, but the absence of them from episode to episode is considerably noticed. Hopes this resolves itself for the end of the season. TNG, DS9, and Voyager didn't seem to have this problem, but those shows weren't made in the age of COVID, which I know we had touched on, Pete, but anytime there's something like that that you think could be production-related and it's from this season, I feel like we just we give them the, the benefit of the doubt. You can't help but not, and the links that they've gone to, I mean, the industry moving to COVID compliance officers and everything like that, on top of Discovery being one of the first shows to go back into production. Um, so the entire season is informed by the pandemic. Last tweet here comes from Barton Stan. that's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1 on Twitter. Reno is back, and we actually saw Reese uh, has had a life besides three words a week. Uh, at least we got to know something about him. Another obnoxious scientist. Not sure we needed that. Beetle bombs, pretty cool. Add saw blades, very cool. Morkovich <laughs> is always dot dot interesting. Great episode. Um, I would agree with everything there. Uh, Beetle bombs needs to be the next Star Trek based uh, band name uh, for the next. <laughs> decade or something and now pete let's head back to starfleet hq where we can hear from the one and the only grand admiral fred from the netherlands hello matt pete and listeners to the discovery podcast this is fred from the netherlands with some feedback on star trek discovery episode 10 so last week's episode you probably would think hey what episode 10 this was actually a recording of four years ago about episode 10 of season one. So my introduction to my audio feedback, one of my very first audio feedbacks to this podcast. And my wife recently said, hey, Fred, your voice is changing. It's going cracking, etc." So I listened to something of four years ago and indeed my voice gets a little lower, I think, but it's not so bad as she said. Okay, now going into season four, episode five. Last week's podcast, Matt made a statement which is not true. Pete, always on the right, is Grand Admiral Fred from the Netherlands, whose voice waves we hollow in right now. Well, about the tall symbionts, I was not right at all. And I still find it crazy, actually. But I can explain it a little bit. Actually, I had recorded the greetings and the feedback on last week's podcast first. And then I watched the show and added the feedback on the current episode, so episode 4. And obviously, I didn't pay attention enough. Because now I went back to that scene with Grey and Adira and I heard indeed Grey say that the tall symbiont is still in Adira. Which I find very strange actually. Because I still wonder if Grey's consciousness, if that's possible at all, well obviously it is, is copied somehow to the android. But the big question is, is it copied or is it transferred? It seems like that Grey is gone from the symbiont in Adira. 
Bray is not also in Adira, I have the impression. So you could imagine that if they make androids of all the tall hosts, so all the tall hosts that are still in Adira's symbiont, then you could revive all these tall people, and then the symbiont that is left in Adira would be an empty symbiont. Uh, really? Or is that then Adira tall? I think she only was harboring the symbiont and not really connected to the symbiont as a regular trill. I think with this model there are quite some inconsistencies. Transferring the whole symbiont would have been more logic. I find it very strange that the symbiont is not transferred, but perhaps it has a purpose which we will encounter later in this season. And why didn't I pick it up? Well, I only saw the episode once. And a extenuating circumstance in my case was that I was watching it with my wife and she started to get sick and throw up. That was, by the way, not because of watching Star Trek Discovery and getting disgusted by it, but that was some pumpkin soup that obviously was gone bad. And the funny thing is that exactly in the same scene that or setting where Grey is talking about the symbiont in Adira, Adira also says something about soup. I'll walk in, say hello. Now I know someone. Easy. You'll do the same with the cadets. I'm sorry, have you met me? <laughs> I can't have soup without scanning it first. Well, soup without scanning it first. Perhaps my wife should have scanned her soup as well. Okay, going into episode 5. First off, in his discussion with Dr. Kolber, I think David Cronenberg did a much better job this time as Kovic as last episode. I was quite critical about his performance, but now it was quite okay. I think the prisoner liberation was quite Star Trek-y in the sense of the discussion about autonomy. And in this case, Book had quite some problems with leaving Felix behind. And of course, although she had some difficulties with it, uh, Burnham did the right thing. She actually should imagine that it would be the other way around. That just Burnham took him. Well, we would all be devastated because it would be so un-Star Trek-y. If you look at it in that way, it was actually quite predictable. The interaction between Ruan, Tarka and Stamets was also a little predictable, but it was, I think, great fun, especially because also Commander Jet Reno was there. Really nice. And suddenly I thought, why do I know this Tarka? The actor is Sean Doyle, and he actually played Secretary Aaron Wright for 27 episodes in The Expanse, which is currently running its last season of six episodes. I don't know if this actor always plays a kind of arrogant roles, but in the case of Aaron Wright and here Tarka, there is some similarity there. Okay, I really have to stop here, otherwise it gets too long. And the church bell starts to ring. Anyhow, that's on Sunday morning, of course. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, our podcast, all the better for the church bells of the Netherlands, or at least those closest to Fred, gracing our podcast there. 
Uh, and a couple of points here from Fred. Um, this idea here that Gray's life force is completely out of Adira. Um, Pete, your thoughts? Can they revive the other Tal uh, members living in the symbiote? Well, I mean, they had talked about the, um, I almost said Ellen, but the E, uh, technology, Matt, mixing my agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They had talked about um, the synth technology and that Picard had it, you know, this obscure admiral back in the day. And you're not going to replicate all the other identities. You know, it was spurious in that episode where they transferred Gray, who had the symbiont. It was not laid out. And that a week later that we're told it stays with Adira. It makes the most story sense because they are expected to add experiences to the symbiont. Okay. Um, and, you know, we've been on this journey of giving Gray corporeal form. I don't think you were ever going to put the symbiont in a synthetic body. That doesn't seem to track on a variety of levels. Uh, so you, you've done that there and that you keep it with the human. Yeah, is it problematic when Riker hosted a, a trill in an emergency situation? Eventually there was rejection. We also know that that's since been overcome and that it's been done on a number of, uh, you know, occasions. We certainly hope the Fred's wife is feeling better. Uh, yeah, that is kind of terrifying there to get sick while you're watching Discovery and that the soup thing was, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully she's on the mend. And uh, also kudos to Fred who pointed out that regarding the the prison portion of the story it's not just a covid metaphor uh, it also was exploring justice which i think was kind of on the surface of the discussion but also exploring prisoners and justice and prisoner rights and all that again not the focus of the episode but uh fred kind of bringing it up and i think it's a good reminder that 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 is in there too as part of the discussion fred always on point Pete, how can people continue the Star Trek discussion as we approach the midpoint of this season, which is bonkers? How can people be in touch with you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,257 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me in touch with the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Instagram, Gmail, and Twitter, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the P and the H, like it today. If you're listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, okay, tomorrow is Spider-Man No Way Home. The day after that is the Book of Boba Fett final preview. Then we take a day off to, you know, spend time with our families and work and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> then the day after that, we'll podcast Hawkeye 106. Then we'll take like two days off to celebrate the holidays. Then we'll be back same time, same place, whether you're here on the Pop Culture Podcast feed or for Star Trek to discuss Discovery 406 on December 26th. Then the day after that, we'll talk about The Matrix on Patreon. For now, though, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. We do our best work when it's close. <laughs>